Good to be back with you constant listeners for episode 97 of the Far Middle Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Deolius, and with today's dedication, which we're going to get right into, when it comes to 97 in the world of sports, I'm starting to develop a major level of stress because today's dedication goes to a player who's starting to present a major risk to my settled view, or what was my settled view, of the Mount Rushmore of hockey. Now, we've talked about that hockey Mount Rushmore on a couple of prior episodes of this podcast. You know that my view on the four faces on that mountain of greatness today would be Gretzky and Lemieux and Orr. And I'm assuming here that the grade eight is going to break the all-time goal record, uh, which he looks to be in a position to achieve. So that would mean also Alex Ovechkin. And at least some truly great players off that mountain. You don't have Sidney Crosby up there. You don't have Gordie Howe and everyone in between, including um, players like Maurice Richard. But what was settled for me when it came to those four names is now looking increasingly unsettled because there's a new force that game after game and season after season is starting to exert himself into the conversation of having the potential to be the greatest hockey player in history when it's all said and done. His number, of course, is 97, and his name is Connor McDavid. Now, I admit I was a bit of a skeptic when McDavid first appeared in the NHL. Don't get me wrong. I could see right away that he was going to be a generational talent. But, you know, I was far from convinced he would end up being the greatest in the game currently, let alone one of the greatest in the history of the game. But once again, I was wrong in that initial assessment. Um, Connor McDavid is the best player in the NHL today, and it's not even close. And if he sustains the pace of play that he's currently on, and if he manages to win a championship, My projections have him pushing somebody off of that Mount Rushmore face by the time he hangs up his skates. And McDavid's greatness is evident from both the perspectives of statistics as well as the eye test. So, you know, talking first about the eye test, you watch him play. It doesn't matter if it's on TV or live. You see that he does things that no one else can do, and he does them at a speed that no one else can match. But then you jump on the Internet and you check out his statistics in a season or his career pace, or what he's doing in clutch periods of time, like the Stanley Cup playoffs. And again, Connor McDavid is doing things at a pace that hasn't been seen since the era of Gretzky and Lemieux. So we dedicate episode 97 to Connor McDavid of the Edmonton Oilers. It's going to be fun continuing to watch him over the course of the coming seasons. But back to my dilemma. If, and I know that's a big if, McDavid continues to do what he does and wins a cup or more, who, when you look at Lemieux, Gretzky, or Ovechkin, who am I going to take off of that mountain? I really can't tell you at this stage. Maybe I need to see more from McDavid, but I suspect that's just me making excuses to myself to avoid a truly difficult decision, but a fun one nevertheless. Let's see how things unfold with Mr. McDavid, and let me know any thoughts you've got on how we might be able to make room for him out of those four names down the road. All right, Dr. James Burke, the creator and host of the History and Science docuseries Connections, I hope you're listening because we are paying homage to you by starting the making of our connections for episode 97. We're talking Mount Rushmore of hockey. You know, the real Mount Rushmore in South Dakota has on its face two presidents that most consider to be among the greatest ever, which of course are Abraham Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt. Those are the two of the four on that mountain that I'm talking about. And these two historically significant presidents, they shared a few things in common. But one of the most relevant views is something that plays prominent today with the presidency. Now, we saw this issue play out with Presidents Obama, Trump, and certainly with Biden. And that is where is the healthy balance and equilibrium? Where does it sit when it comes to presidential power? 
So there's two schools of thought when it comes to presidential power. One view is that the president enjoys narrower powers and should only be allowed to do things that the Constitution explicitly allows for or the Congress has enacted through proper legislation. And this view limits the power of the presidency and favors, when all things are equal, executive inaction over action. And basically, it favors presidential restraint. Now, of course, there's a second view to consider. And this is the view that was held by both Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt. The president's responsibility is to do what's best for the people. And the president should be free to do whatever he or she deems necessary in the interest of the people at a particular point in time. And the only thing that would limit what the president may do would be something that is explicitly forbidden in the Constitution or in statute. So you see the difference, of course, between those two schools of thought. Now, there was another influential president who adopted this stance of wider presidential power, the one that Teddy Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln held, who, of course, was FDR. Now, Lincoln and FDR, they were making their arguments for wider presidential power during times of crisis, namely the Civil War, of course, and the Great Depression. And during those times of crisis, there was going to be an inevitable popular desire to do something. In other words, favoring action over inaction. But this view of wide presidential power, it's a very slippery and dangerous slope because if you change out the Civil War with, say, the global financial crisis of 2008-2009, or if you change out the Great Depression with, say, the pandemic shutdowns of a few years ago, many presidents, including the not-so-great ones or ones with questionable judgment, they're going to be able to make decisions and do things that are clearly inconsistent with the checks and balances created by the Constitution or that would be done without the consent of, say, the American people through either the ballot box or statutes that are passed by an elected Congress. And many of you know that I lean toward a libertarian political philosophical mindset, which means I'm always going to favor a balance where the state is minimal and where deference is given to the individual citizen or to the local government, which means I typically would lean toward the lesser side of the spectrum of presidential power versus the more powerful side. Teddy Roosevelt and Abraham Lincoln disagreed, and they favored the executive branch of government through the presidency to enjoy more power in autocratic decision-making, and so did FDR, and so did Presidents Bush, Obama, and now Biden. You couple a growing number of presidents who look to make decisions assuming greater authority than what the Constitution explicitly allows for um, with the perfect type of a crisis, and you suddenly see individual freedoms and free enterprise come under attack by the whole of government. And that's exactly what's happening when it comes to the current administration and the epically convenient global crisis of climate change. The argument being made by those in the executive branch of power with their allies, whether it's across government or environmentalists or academia, is that there's a code red for humanity, right? A greater crisis than the Civil War, the Great Depression, the global financial crisis, and COVID all wrapped up together. And the United States has to act decisively and immediately, or else in the words of Al Gore, the boiling of the oceans will commence. And suddenly you see the executive branch of the government and the administrative state impacting the individual and commerce and decision-making to a degree that the founding fathers would never have envisioned and would have been horrified with regard to. And that leads us to the next connection, which is the topic of the trait of courage. Certainly presidents such as Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt and FDR, they had courage, which isn't to say I agreed with many of their policies. Um, Teddy Roosevelt, I disagreed with to a certain extent, but FDR for sure, I had a lot of disagreements with where he came out on certain policy views. 
but they all exuded courage. And what's frustrating about the level of excessive presidential and executive branch power these days is that the framers of the Constitution, they envisioned the threat and placed two specific and powerful safeguards against this very thing from happening. We call them Congress and the Supreme Court. In other words, the other two branches of the federal government under the systems of checks and balances laid out in the Constitution were designed to protect from this very type of phenomenon from happening. And the problem is that these two branches of government, they've suffered from a lack of courage the past few years. Congress has become an entity of individuals and political parties and as an institution itself that is all too comfortable with not doing its job in delegating by inference or in some instances explicitly by vague statute to the executive branch of the federal government and the administrative state. Now, if you were listening here, I just used the phrase that might seem contradictory on its face. I use the phrase explicitly by vague statute, but actually it's quite accurate. The Congress passed a law that cites some aspirational but general goal, that's what you typically see, you know, something like to improve environmental quality or some phrase like improve quality of life. And they, Congress, delegate that responsibility to the executive branch and to the administrative state to do what they please in furthering the quite vague goal that's in the statute. The regulator and the bureaucrat, they're now free to rule over whatever activity or industry that has a tie to the statute and its general aim. And if the regulations are unpopular, those in Congress can deny direct responsibility and just point to the regulator for the blame. Congress avoided making accountable and sometimes tough decisions, and thus they avoid having to answer to the American people at the ballot box for the consequences of these explicitly vague statutes that delegate power to nameless and faceless and unelected bureaucrats. But even when Congress outsources its responsibility to the executive branch in an unconstitutional manner, the framers put in yet another safeguard in the Constitution, and that, of course, is the Supreme Court, which would have the ability to review a statute passed by Congress or a regulation enacted by the executive branch and then assess whether or not it lives within the constitutionally prescribed checks and balances of authority. But the Supreme Court's been lacking in courage, just like Congress has for far too long. Why? Because the Supreme Court has adopted an excessive level of deference to allowing the executive branch and the regulator to freely interpret what the vague statute passed by Congress says. One of the most famous decisions by the Supreme Court that created this uh, bad situation is known as the Chevron case or the Chevron deference. And now there's been some chipping away at the Chevron deference precedent of late, but the moves by the Supreme Court, at least from my perspective, they've been too little and much too late. So you know, with all due respect to those courageous presidents, such as Abraham Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt and FDR, as well as to the current president, it's time for the Supreme Court and Congress to start doing their jobs in line with and in accordance with the clear prescriptions and intentions found within the Constitution. It was genius, the Constitution that was at its inception, and it works extremely well when followed in a reasonable manner. If government ignores it when convenient and then evolves into ignoring it as standard practice, we're all going to need to be concerned. What's occurred over the past 200 plus years when it comes to the original construction of our checks and balances system within government, as well as the Constitution itself, brings us to our next connection, which is also experiencing an evolution, and that is in the arena of sports gambling in the United States of all topics. Now, if you think our checks and balances system within government has evolved, 
to the point where it heavily favors the executive and administrative branch, you'd be amazed in how far the sports gambling industry has evolved to favor the house. Now, the house used to be, back in the day, organized crime and a bookie. Then it morphed into Las Vegas sports books as well as Atlantic City. And then came the internet and government's voracious appetite for tax revenue. Those things, they brought on a proliferation of casinos in just about every state, as well as online gambling, both raising revenue for government via one of the most regressive taxes that you're going to find. You know, in other words, the proliferation of gambling in sports and the revenue that it raises for government, those things end up falling disproportionately on the working poor and the middle class. Now, the House has always set odds to favor it over the individual gambler. That's nothing new. That's why back in the day, organized crime thrived. That's how Las Vegas itself, its mega casinos and all the corporations backing them have thrived. But now we're seeing a step change evolution in how the house is further stacking the deck, so to speak, in its favor when it comes to sports betting. And just to put this in perspective, last year, Americans wagered almost $94 billion on sports. The biggest and best example of this market can be found, of course, in the most popular form of sports betting, which is pro football. Um, About half the bets placed on NFL games this past season um, were placed after the opening kickoff. So that's what's commonly referred to as prop betting. Stuff like um, so-and-so player is going to score the next touchdown, um, or will this possession by that team result in a field goal or not. You're basically placing bets real-time and in the middle of a game for constant excitement and stimulation. And gamblers, of course, they end up betting every 30 seconds or every minute instead of once every three hours before a game. That's what it's designed to do, and that's what it successfully does with um, with the prop bets. Now, for each of those prop bets, the house is setting the odds to establish a vigorish, or the vig, that ensures the house's profit. So very few people pay attention to the vigorish, but it's a crucial piece of the gambling process. It's where the big money is made and the value flows from the aggregated gamblers to the house. And because the VIG is so important, it's only a matter of time before the house figured out a way to evolve with the in-game prop betting to garner even more advantage and more profit. And it comes down to a simple time difference. The house setting the odds in VIG for the in-game prop bets is basically getting this information of the game real-time. So there's maybe a second of delay in the live feed that the house has seen. But viewers of a game, you're watching a delay feed that can be as long as 30 seconds on TV and even longer, more than double the lag time in some cases, especially if you're viewing things and watching games through internet apps. So that gap is plenty enough time for the house to quickly set odds in the VIG in its favor. And it is basically a play ahead of the better. The house is a play ahead of where you're at as a gambler. So let's say you're watching the Chiefs in the Super Bowl and the Chiefs complete a pass down to the opponent's five-yard line. But on the next play, Mahomes, the quarterback, he's going to throw an interception. If the gambling house knows the interception is coming before the gamblers, they can set the odds in VIG in a way to entice even more bets and higher bets on that possession resulting in a score. It's an unfair advantage for sure. You know, the house has more recent data than the gamblers. But then, you know, think about this. Realize gambling, it's unfair to begin with. The odds are designed to create an unfair advantage for the house. And by the way, there is a um, sort of a fix, a, uh, a patch for this, a way for gamblers to levelize this phenomenon with the, uh, the in-game prop bets. What do you do? You might have already thought of this, right? You just simply wait till a commercial break. 
And after the first commercial or so, the gambler now has the same data set as the house. You've basically caught up with the delay feed and you can place your prop bets toward the middle of the commercial break. Or better yet, don't gamble. The odds are stacked against you by design. Yes, the, uh, the gambling industry evolves to garner more advantage than originally intended or contemplated. Just like the executive branch of the federal government looks to collect more power than originally intended or contemplated, time and technology, they certainly play pivotal roles in the ability of either to do so and a too complacent citizenry or customer base, it's going to allow those interests to get away with it. Now, if we take a quick inventory of topics that we've been discussing so far in episode 97, um, you've got this theme of driven individuals, Connor McDavid, Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, um, FDR, people we bet on in sport like uh, Patrick Mahomes. Let's connect those names in the topic of human drive to a little bit of a philosophical concept, um, one that came from the Greeks, and the concept is Tumas. Now, the way you spell Tumas is T-H-Y-M-O-S, but I believe the correct pronunciation is Tumas. The concept of Tumas started with Homer, but I think Plato gave us the best synopsis of what it is in human nature. Tumas is the drive for, in a word, recognition. It's the courage to pursue things. Humans want others to recognize their individual significance. It's the same for teams in a competitive environment. You want to feel important and part of something different, something special. And humans can never thrive when feeling emptiness in their soul. So a lot of people will say a person is oftentimes motivated by, let's say, money or power. And I tend to think of those not necessarily as the root motivators, but as means to an end, with the real desire being recognition. Money and power are often selected as ways to keep score of one's recognition, which, of course, in some instances can lead to bad outcomes. No doubt about that. Now, Plato, he argued the essence of an individual can be bracketed into three different sort of parts or buckets. Two of the three are what we most hear about and learned about. So the first being, of course, reason or intellect, which is effectively rational thought. And then the second being the appetite or human desire. So it's for things like food, sex, that type of thing. But the third sort of category of human nature, it doesn't get enough attention and it's the thing that makes the Lincolns and the Mahomes and the Teddy Roosevelts. And it's Tumas, the pursuit for recognition. Tumas motivates the best and worst things an individual does. And a little bit of Tumas can take a person a very long way. And not everyone is going to exude the same level of Tumas. Some people have little, if any. But high achievers, they all exude it, that sense of purpose and drive. And the most important ingredient that McDavid has that makes him great on the ice, it's not his speed. It's his motivation to be recognized. Uh, Washington, D.C., it's a place that's been aptly named the swamp. But in many ways, D.C. is swamped with Tumas, that insatiable need for recognition held by what seems to be each and every one of its inhabitants down in the District of Columbia. That creates the best and the worst of leadership that this country's experienced through over 200 years of history. I think the Tumas can impact teams and certainly the culture of teams, or even nations and societies. Where you have meritocracy, you have Tumas. Where you see championships being won, you almost always have a prerequisite ingredient of Team Tumas. Competitive businesses, they exude a culture of Tumas, a purpose for being. Now, it can be, it being Tumas, can be positively impactful and startling. So, examples through history Martin Luther King, 
Michael Jordan, Amazon, the United States of America. But it can also, if not used or, or harnessed appropriately, can lead to hugely poor decision making and disasters. Examples of that, Enron, um, cheating scandals in sports or academia, and again, how the District of Columbia becomes viewed as an immoral swamp. But positive or negative, Tumas, it's a necessary ingredient, make no mistake about it, that needs to be nurtured in any society that values the individual and that desires to enjoy high quality of life. Tumas is not a cure-all and it can be abused, but without it, society is out of luck. Now, what sort of um, political systems or cultures connect directly to Tumas and which ones are allergic to it? In other words, they're always looking to constantly subdue it. Well, when you look at capitalism and meritocracy and Western Republican democracies and free enterprise, they all require Tumas to do their things. And again, I'm recognizing that once again, too much of a good thing can lead to bad outcomes. But when you look at the left and communism and socialism and equal outcomes, those things are designed to eradicate any sense of individual and societal tumas. Those systems manufacture effectively a vacuum of human emptiness. And you don't want to live in those types of societies or cultures because they crush the human spirit, specifically the part of the spirit that Plato tagged as tumas. So I want to exude personal tumas in the proper way. I want to work for a company and within an industry that have a shared sense of tumas. I want to be part of a region, nation, and society that gets it and embraces it. So when we see certain interests aligning against tumas, I feel an ethical duty and a self-interest to rebut them civilly, of course. Time is flying on this episode 97. So let's go with one final connection to make before calling it a done deal. We've been getting philosophical with all this talk of the Greeks and Tumas, as well as the highly successful who find a way to exude it within the proper context. So let's close with the discussion of an actor and a director who harnessed the power of his inner Tumas successfully for decades. His name is Clint Eastwood. Eastwood is now, believe it or not, 92 years old. He was once a Republican out there in Northern California, where he's lived for years, and now he's more likely to refer to himself as a bit of a libertarian, which is yet another thing I like about him. He was born in the Bay Area, and his family was pretty well off growing up. He was a bit of a rebel, a horrible student, and he had a breakout role in the late 1950s in the Western TV series Rawhide, and after that, of course, he was off and running. Now, my favorite sort of period of Eastwood. It coincides with what a lot of his fans consider their favorite period to be, which was those Western movies that were filmed in Spain and Italy and that are categorized as the spaghetti Westerns. And many of them were made by the great director Sergio Leone. And these are the movies that include Fistful of Dollars, um, For a Few Dollars More, and of course, right, one of the greatest films ever, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Eastwood played similar roles in all of those movies that came to be known as the man with no name character, and he just did an awesome job doing so. Now, toward the end of the, uh, the 1960s, Eastwood used his sense of Tumas to do what? To take his acting earnings and invest it into his own production company so that he could direct films. Out of Carmel, Monterey uh, was where he headquartered the effort, which is where he lived, and the hits kept coming. Um, from more Westerns to things like the uh, the Dirty Harry franchise. So how about a recommendation from me to you for an underrated Clint Eastwood movie that you might not have seen? I'm going to go with one from 1971. The title is Play Misty for Me. 
It's a suspenseful psychological thriller. And there are a couple of things I really like about this movie. But the first thing I'll say, if you watch that movie, it's going to remind you heavily of another movie, which is Fatal Attraction, which came way after Play Misty for me. In fact, Fatal Attraction, um, it, it borrows quite liberally from Play Misty for me. It's just it's almost shocking how similar um, the themes and the characters are between the two. But what are some of the things that I really liked about Play Misty for me? First, um, the location of where the movie takes place. It takes place in Eastwood's backyard, one of the most beautiful places in the country, which is Carmel Monterey. Um, the scenes, the scenery, they're spectacular, and the shots throughout the towns and along the Pacific Coast Highway. It's just, just visually a really, really fun movie to watch. Jazz is another thing I love about this movie. It permeates the entire film. The main character, played by Eastwood, is a jazz radio station disc jockey. Um, the station in the movie is KRML, as in Carmel. Actually, it existed for a long period of time. It might still exist. I'm not sure about that. Um, and the station studio was in a building in Carmel that's owned by Clint Eastwood. So it's where his restaurant, The Hog's Breath, resided. Now, there are scenes also in this film from the Monterey Jazz Festival in the movie. And I believe the Cannonball Adderley, the jazz great, has a cameo mention in the film. And of course, Earl Garner's Misty. That plays prominent, not just in the movie title, but also in the soundtrack and throughout the film. And by the way, um, Earl Garner hails from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is the worldwide headquarters for the far middle. Um, he was a Westinghouse High School alum, along with two other jazz giants from the Steel City, Billy Strayhorn and Ahmad Jamal. All three, by the way, were pianists. Now, what are those odds? If there's some sort of magical piano in the halls of Westinghouse High School, I'm not aware of it, but there might be. Now, the soundtrack of the movie, by the way, it has a major added bonus besides jazz. Eastwood somehow secured the rights to perhaps the greatest vocal performance on a single of the 1970s, which is Roberta Flack's The First Time Ever I Saw Your Face. It doesn't get any better than Roberta Flack when it comes to vocals. That song went on to win Song and Record of the Year, by the way, in the Grammys in 1972. And the last thing I love about Play Misty for me is that it oozes the era of the 1970s. Now, I was probably too young, or I was too young, to really be part of the 70s or remember it specifically. I was more of a kid of the 80s. But what the movie captures from what I remember the 70s was stuff like the hair and the clothes and the cars. Even the furniture in the movie screams 1970s. It's just a, a great era type movie. So Play Misty for me, it was Eastwood's first film as a director, which brings us back to the topic of Tumas. Acting wasn't enough for Eastwood. He was driven to achieve even more by being recognized beyond his acting. And in an interview, he explained that it was logical, at least from his perspective, to shift to directing because to that point in his career, he stored up all the right things and wrong things to do that he experienced as an actor on the other side of the camera. And he ran the filmmaking process with an intense precision. The film, Play Misty for Me, finished under budget and on time. That's a rarity for films, of course, but it became a common trait for Eastwood-directed films thereafter. So until next week, here's to Tumas and the benefits it presents to society from those who exude it. Watch an Eastwood movie, put on some Roberta Flack or Earl Garner, and don't stop achieving. <laughs>